Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to my sauna. Uh, as you can see, I'm not Carl Beach or Andy Kind. I'm Steve Parker. I'm on the leadership team at Redeemer King Church here in Chesterfield. Uh, great to have you with us this morning, especially if you're a visitor, as we used to say, uh, BC, before coronavirus. But anyway, it's my privilege to uh, take you through the next part of the book of Nehemiah, which we've been uh, studying together. And so without further ado, I'm going to read uh, the passage that we're going to be studying. And it's uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. It says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunny, Sherebiah, Bani and Kenani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. Well, it's one of the great prayers of the Bible. Uh, but let's just recap um, where we've got to. Of course, Nehemiah was the uh, governor of Judah and uh, he'd uh, gone back uh, to oversee the rebuilding of the, of the city walls, which were broken down. And uh, he did it. He got the job done in just 52 days. The walls were rebuilt. But of course, Nehemiah's project wasn't just to um, wasn't just a building project. He was there to rebuild a whole community. And in order to do that, God had to be put right back at the center of their community life. And the way they do that is by getting Ezra, the scribe, to come and read the book of the law, because by putting the law, uh, that is the word of God, at the center of their life, as a, as a people, uh, they were saying they want God to be at the centre. They want to live lives that please God. So that's what happens. They uh, Ezra, the scribe, reads the book of the law and that reading of the law produces three responses. Uh, we looked at the first one last time and that is celebration. Um, they rediscovered the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which was looking back on their uh, deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Um, and of course, it was a time of, of great joy uh, to look back on that time, but not only to look back to the past, but in Nehemiah's day, 
for his generation to remember God's uh, goodness to them in bringing them up out of exile and allowing them to return uh, back to the promised land. So there's a great time of celebration. But the second response we see here in chapter nine, and it's confession. Uh, it's a very different um, sort of feel to it. It says they gathered together fasting and wearing putting dust in it. These are signs of mourning, of um, sorrow over, over their, their spiritual state. Feast of Tabernacles was a time to now it was a time to mourn. Um, and then the third response uh, you see in chapter 10, and we'll get to that uh, much later, of course, and that is commitment. They renew their commitment to God. They say we're going to try really hard and we're going to we're going to commit ourselves, rededicate ourselves to keep the law. Uh, and so the word of God then produces these three responses um celebration confession and commitment and it's worth just pondering for for a moment just the function of the word of god um it's our food isn't it for for hungry souls uh it's refreshment uh for our spiritual thirst it's light for our path to to guide us but it's also a surgeon's scalpel and uh, the word of god basically cuts us open if we let it and exposes our uh, our sin before God. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And that's what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter nine. As they read the book of the law, <clears throat> um, their, their sin uh, as a people uh, is is made clear, is revealed. And so we have the, the prayer itself um, here in, in chapter nine. And, and we don't actually know who wrote this prayer. It wasn't Nehemiah and it wasn't Ezra. It does seem to be attributed to a group of Levites and they were the priestly tribe uh, in Israel. Now, it's quite a list of names, isn't it? Um, and I have nothing to say about these names. I have no insights, um, no understanding of their significance. We just note that um, they were there, they did their job and they've come up with this amazing prayer. And there are two themes in the prayer, the two big themes of the prayer. Firstly, the repeated failure of the people of God from the very beginning, right up to Nehemiah's day, the repeated failure of the people of God. But alongside that, wonderfully is the indestructible mercy of God and so these two themes run side by side throughout uh, this prayer um, the repeated failure of the people of God and the indestructible mercy of God and that's um, reflected in the in the two sort of emotions that you see there's the sorrow of verse one the the the, the fasting wearing sackcloth putting dust on their heads and the confession of sins but also the praise that you get in verse five, blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. Sorrow and praise go side by side, sorrow at our own sin and our spiritual state, but praise for God's uh, amazing grace. So I'm supposed to focus on verses one to eight, but I thought it would be helpful just to do a bit of an overview because I think we're gonna be spending a few weeks going through this chapter. 
Uh, and I think the best way um, to get a handle on it is to look at the pronouns and the conjunctions. Um, I know that might sound a bit scary, but but it's really not. It's quite straightforward and there's not going to be a test at the end. Um, so where it says you, that means God. It's talking about what God has done. Um, and so, so it's basically a rehearsal of Israel's history. So we start off with the God of creation in verse six. Uh, you made the heavens. Um, you gave life to everything. He's the God of creation. Then we, we see the God of covenant, the God who chose Abraham and made a covenant with him. Um, and it says you've kept your promise uh, to you kept your promises to him. And we see how God kept those promises in the history as it unfolds in the rest of the prayer. So uh, God's faithfulness to the descendants of Abraham was seen in the Exodus when uh, it says, verse nine, you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry. You sent signs and wonders. You divided the sea uh, and you led the people up out of slavery. Um, and then you brought them to Mount Sinai where you spoke to them. Verse 13, uh, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right. You made known to them your commands and decrees through your servant Moses. And God sustained them as well. Uh, he gave them bread from heaven and thirst, um, satisfied their thirst with water from the rock. So it's just a, a wonderful testimony to, to God's goodness. Um, and yet we come to verse 16 and we see the first but, but they, our ancestors became arrogant and stiff-necked and they did not obey your commands. Um, and maybe that comes as a bit of a shock after all that God has done for them. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. I say maybe you're shocked, but if you've read back far enough, if you read back to Genesis chapter three, then maybe it's not so much of a shock because this is the human heart. This is human sinfulness. In the face of God's provision and his goodness, they still turn their backs on God. And what is God's response to that? Does he cancel the covenant? Does he say it's null and void? But like the, the League One and Two football season, does he just say, well, that's it. It's all over. Well, no. Um, in verse 17, but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. This is the God of the Old Testament. Now, a lot of people say, oh, we don't like the Old Testament, all those wars and, you know, such an angry, vengeful, wrathful God. Well, it doesn't really um, bear up to scrutiny because this is the most common description of God in the Old Testament, a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. This is what God is like. Uh, and then uh, just very briefly, as, as the prayer goes on, there are more examples of God's kindness 
Uh, he sustains them in the wilderness. He he brings them into the land. Uh, and it says in verse 25, they reveled in his goodness. They ate to the full. They were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. And then there's another but. Even after all of that, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. And this becomes a pattern. So uh, God delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them for a time. But when they were oppressed and they cried out to you from heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. And then it happens all over again. Verse 28. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. The question then becomes, how many times? How many times will God deliver and uh, answer their cries? It says in verse 30, you were patient with them. But when would his patience run out? And so as we get to the end of it in verse 30, for many years you were patient with them by your spirit. You warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighbouring peoples. In the end, judgment had to fall. Um, and so Judah was overrun by the Babylonians. And in 587 BC, uh, Jerusalem itself was destroyed and uh, the people were taken off into exile. But you can't say they weren't warned. You can't say that God didn't give opportunity to repent. Judgment fell. But even then, verse 31, in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And that's the story of the Old Testament, really. Uh, and Nehemiah stands right at the end of that story, looking back on the whole history. Uh, and uh, the prayer ends from verse 32, following uh, where Nehemiah's own generation uh, speak about themselves. They say, now, therefore, the great God who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us. And this has all happened in all that has happened to us. Verse 33, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. So they continued to suffer for the sins of their ancestors. But but they are not innocent either. Uh, they share in the guilt. And so verse 37, because of our sins, the abundant harvest goes to the kings that you've placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. And in a sense, that's that's where the Old Testament finishes. Um, it's an unfinished story. Um, were they back in the land? Yes, they were. Was the temple functioning? Yes, it was. Had the walls been rebuilt? Yes, they had. But were they a free people? No, they were just part of the Persian Empire. Was it the kingdom of God on earth? 
No, it wasn't. Kingdom needs a king. And they were still waiting for the king. And had the problem of the rebellious heart that had plagued Israel, or you could say plagued the human race <laughs> since the fall, had a solution been found? No. There can be no kingdom without a king, and there can be no solution for sin without a cross. And so that is how the book of Nehemiah points us to Jesus. And I think every Old Testament sermon should do that, should lead us to Jesus. Because Jesus is the king they're waiting for, the long promised Messiah. And the cross is the solution that we all need um, for our sin. Uh, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul puts it like this uh, in Romans chapter 3. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So the, the truth is, the way we should look at the cross is that Jesus did what we cannot do. He lived a perfect life. Um, he did what Israel could never do. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He fulfilled the law in his life. He lived the perfectly righteous life that was acceptable to God. And then he offered up that perfect life as a sacrifice. Um, and he allowed himself uh, to be executed at Calvary in a sacrificial death. But that was the satisfaction of God's wrath. God's anger was poured out on Jesus. The law was fulfilled. See, here's the thing. God, when God looks at the sin of the human race, he doesn't say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll just let you off again. I'm full of grace, you know. No, he doesn't do that. He chooses to pay the debt himself. Jesus paid the debt. Um, God paid it in the person of his son. And that's the gospel. Um, and that's and that's the good news that the, the, the king has come and there is an answer uh, to the problem of sin, the problem of the rebellious human hearts. So as I close, uh, I just want to address three groups of people. Um, firstly, maybe you're you're watching and, and you're not a Christian, um, in which case I just want to encourage you to look to Jesus. Um, and to see that what he did, he did for you. And what he offers is free and full forgiveness and a fresh start. And you won't find a better offer anywhere else. Uh, this is the best thing going right now. And uh, our world is in terrible need. Uh, and the gospel is the answer. Look to Jesus and all that he has done for you. But secondly, maybe you're a Christian. I think most people watching this will be. But you struggle with sin. And you think, well, I'm just like those Israelites. Well, join the club. Uh, we all still struggle with sin. None of us has arrived yet. We're all still works in progress. But the good news is that God hasn't changed. As uh, the prayer began and the Levite said, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. He doesn't change. And he's that same God 
slow to anger, full of grace and mercy, abounding in love, compassionate, forgiving, merciful, the same yesterday, today and forever. It's the same God. So our response uh, should be the same as what we read here. They cry for mercy. They confess their sins and they renew their commitment. And we've probably got to do that every day as Christians because we sin every day. But the gospel um, tells me that, that God's mercies are new every morning, that his grace never runs out. And so this is what we do with our sin. We come to God daily. We cry for his mercy. We confess our sins and we renew our commitment. But what about um, someone who says, I've made a commitment to Christ. I still struggle with sin. And to be honest, I don't think I want to stop sinning. Or I can't stop sinning. Well, I, as a pastor, I'd want to say three things. Firstly, there is a war on. Uh, we're caught up in a spiritual battle against the world, the flesh and the devil, ultimately. And maybe it's time to fight back. Maybe it's time to wake up to the spiritual reality and to choose uh, who you're going to be. And to live out, live your life from your identity as a child of God. Don't become a casualty in the war. Uh, secondly, I I'd want to remind you that God is not God is not mocked. Uh, Galatians 6 verse 7. So it's a New Testament principle. Paul says God is not mocked. We reap what we sow. And Jesus said something similar when he was talking about building houses. You know, if you build on the rock, you'll stand firm. But houses that are built on sand tend to fall. So if, if, if there is uh, ongoing sin in our lives that is not being dealt with, then then don't expect life to work out the way you want it to. And then the third thing I would say is, is don't harden your heart. Keep listening to the word of God. Um, and I quoted that passage from Hebrews 4, uh, where it said the word of God is like a scalpel uh, that cuts us open. But it doesn't leave us there uh, because immediately following that, it talks about Jesus, our great high priest. Uh, who sympathises with our weakness, understands our temptations and uh, is there to offer real help in times of need. So it cuts us open and exposes us, to, but to lead us to Jesus, to lead us to the cross, uh, to, to receive his grace afresh. And so that's uh, where I'm going to finish. Uh, and that's really where I started. where uh, Ezra brought the word of God um, into the centre of the community life. And that's what we need to do. We need to have God at the centre uh, through his word. And that's a battle and a challenge that we face individually. Uh, it's a battle for our churches, but also very much for the wider society uh, at this time. Um, so thank you for listening. Uh, go well, have a good week, and hopefully we will see each other quite soon. Thank you.